Welcome back to the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Keith Barr to talk about golfers and tennis elbow. Why do these injuries occur and how can we rehab them? Dr. Barr is a world-renowned tendon researcher and has an incredible amount of knowledge that he was kind enough to share. Please note, I have provided video demonstrations of the exercises discussed in a blog post on my website, www.fitforgolf.blog. Just go to the blog section of the website and click on the post labeled Golfers and Tennis Elbow Rehab. There will be clear illustrations of the exercises discussed. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness, and health. There are programs to suit everyone, and there is an abundance of material appropriate for people working out at home or in the gym. Visit www.fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. A reminder that the information in this, po- in this podcast is not designed to replace professional medical advice. Now to Dr. Keith Barr. Dr. Keith Barr, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on your show. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy to get you on. I think this is a topic that a lot of people are struggling with and will be interested to get some really high quality info. Can you please introduce yourself and fill us in on your background, education, research, experience working with athletes, please? Yeah, sure. So so basically, I was a, you know, a good athlete, but not a great athlete for a long time. Played basketball and volleyball competitively at, uh, at the provincial level in Canada when I was younger. And then at college, I played volleyball at Michigan. And then I started developing more of an interest in strength and conditioning. So I was an assistant strength and conditioning coach at the University of Michigan with the uh, football team there. And then when I finished my undergraduate, I went on to do um, a master's and then a, P- a master's out here in California in Berkeley, uh, a PhD at the University of Illinois. And during my PhD, I discovered um, basically the what it is about lifting a heavy weight, which molecule we turn on that results in our muscles getting bigger as a result of strength training. Um, and then from there, I went to, to do my first postdoc at Washington University in St. Louis, um, working with uh, a legend by the name of John Holisey, who uh, was the father of endurance exercise and the adaptations. And so what we discovered there is a specific uh, gene that was that could mediate a lot of the endurance adaptations from the exercise that we do. And from there, did some uh, did a second postdoc in Michigan. Then I started my first lab at uh, the University of Dundee in Scotland. And I was there for five years. Um, and during that time, we, we engineered the first um, ligaments. So we make little ligaments in a, in a dish that uh, have bone on both ends and a, and a connective tissue in the, in the middle. And we started to understand how exercise, nutrition, and, and, and other factors like age can affect the mechanics of tendons and ligaments. Because what we were trying to do in my second postdoc was make machines engineered little muscles using all the stuff that we'd learned from how to build a muscle and then put that in and make it drive a machine like a, a swimming fish or, or some sort of, of device. And what would always happen is they'd always fail at the interface between the muscle and the machine. And so that's why we started um, trying to figure out what a tendon did. And then about 12 years ago, I came here to the University of California in Davis, and uh, we've been doing a lot of work on kind of these musculoskeletal tissues, so muscle, tendon, ligaments, um, and how they're affected by exercise, nutrition, and age. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much. So I listened to you on, actually, do you want to tell us a little bit too before we go on about what you've done uh, with athletes in a practical setting? Yeah, sure. So so we, I, I tend not to work directly with athletes. I try and do education. So I'm, I'm a professor, I'm a teacher by training. So what I tr- try and do is I try and get um, the, the pr- player performance staff. And so I've worked with a lot of both Premier League, NFL, NBA, um, some, some baseball, uh, some rugby, 
just what we're trying to do is we're trying to maximize performance while minimizing injury. Lots of lots of Olympic athletes. So, you know, you're seeing a lot of Winter Olympics right now. But also when you're going and you everybody who watches a, an Olympic World Championship um, in track and field, we all know that, oh, if we're watching the men's 400 meters, there's going to be at least one or two guys who pull up grabbing the back of their leg in total agony. This time of year, you know, you're going to watch football or soccer and you're going to see somebody going for a big sprint, a long sprint. And at the end, they're going to pull up grabbing the back of their leg. A lot of that is the type of injury that that my lab is studying. And so what we do is we train the we train the trainers and we try and get it to the point where they understand why the injuries are happening and what's the best way to avoid them. Fantastic. Thank you. So I got to know your work a little bit more closely after listening to you on a number of podcasts discussing tendon injury and rehab. I get lots of messages from golfers who are struggling with golfer's elbow and tennis elbow, which are tendon injuries. They can be very difficult to overcome. We hear terms like tendonitis, tendinosis, tendinopathy used when talking about these issues. Can you discuss what the differences in these are and, and what problems we actually are looking at, please? Sure. So, so the difference between tendinosis and tendonitis, tendinosis, uh, so tendonitis just means that you've got a tendon problem that's got some inflammation in it. And so usually what happens is that's pretty soon after the initial injury. Because pretty soon after the initial injury, there's an inflammatory response. We get a lot of uh, our immune system tries to come in and try and fix things. And so that's a tendonitis when there's active immune cells within the injured area. And then tendinosis is a later time when you've kind of fixed things up a little bit so that there's not an acute injury, but you haven't fixed the injury itself. Um, and that's really the biggest problem with tendon injuries is that um, if I were to injure my muscle, or if I were to injure my liver, even if I had somebody come in and I was a really generous person and I donated part of my liver to somebody who needed a liver transplant, my liver would actually regrow scar-free to the exact same size that it is right now, as long as I only took, you know, less than half of the liver. And that ability to heal without scarring is really important for our skin and for our tissues like liver and other tissues that can regenerate completely. Skeletal muscle is another one that regenerates extraordinarily well. The thing that's different about a tendon is once we get an injury in a tendon, that injury is not going to go away unless you make it go away. And the reason for that, and that goes, increases with age. So it gets, you have a small injury it's harder to get that, to fix that injury in a tendon as you get older. And all of these things are, are down to the mechanism by which an injury happens. And so when you get a little tiny bit of an injury, what you need is what you provide as a strength coach. You need some load to go through the injured part. But because tendons are these tissues that are absolutely required. So if we have a little bit of a tear in one, if that tears all the way through, we're going to not be able to run and escape a predator. What we had to evolve is we had to evolve a way so that our tendons could work even if they weren't working perfectly. Because it's better to be able to escape a predator on a tendon that's not working very well than to be completely lame because it ruptures. The problem is that in the short term, that's good because it doesn't rupture. In the long term, it's bad because we never fix it. So what we call a tendonitis, a, a tendinosis, we just say tendinopathy. That encompasses everything. And so a tendinosis, you don't see the inflammation anymore because it's kind of an, a mature scar. Whereas in tendinitis, it's been close to your injury time, and now you've got inflammation and other things in there. And so you still see that inflammatory signal in there. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So... The onset of golfers or tennis elbow is often um, as a result of a sharp or sudden rise in the amount of stress on the affected tendon. What's happening in the tendon that leads to this loss of function and pain? Yeah, and it's not even just a sharp rise in how much we're doing. So it's not that, okay, today I went out and swung a lot more than I, I swung the last 
seven days or, or month. What it really is, is it's the speed at which we're trying to load. And so what you, when you really see tendonitis and tendinopathies come in, or to really show or to aggravate a tendon, what you actually do is the thing that aggravates the tendon is what we call jerk. Okay, so it, where I'm standing is my location. The rate of change of my location is my velocity. The rate of change of my velocity is my acceleration. And the rate of change of my acceleration, that's my jerk. So if I'm accelerating in one direction and I hit something like a golf ball that's, acceler that's sitting still, it's in a sense accelerating the opposite direction that I am. And so what it's going to do is it's going to have this instantaneous jerk. We see it in swimmers when, in, when they're, they use those hand paddles. Because now what you've got is you've got a bigger jerk when, you, when your hand hits the water. We see it in golfers when they're trying to hit when they're trying to swing faster, even if they're not hitting a ball, they're still getting that snap when the elbow straightens. And that's where we're introducing jerk. When we're doing it in tennis, again, it's the same thing. It's accelerating and maybe doing a little bit too much of these high jerk movements. And we know that in tendons, the little proteins in there, they actually become denatured or they actually become unwound by the faster, the more jerk there is, the more you unwind those little molecules that are the part of the, the, the tendon that keeps the tendon working well. And so if you do a lot of those high jerk movements, now what you're going to have is you're going to have this small amount of injury to your tendon. You're also in the area where you've got your tendon, where it inserts onto the bone, you've got these little fat pads that are there to lubricate and protect. But when you do a lot of really fast movements, they're also getting compressed quite a bit. They've got a lot of blood vessels. So now you're going to get inflammation that's coming in from that protective tissue as well. So you get this localized inflammatory response. And so if you do too much, within a day or two, you can feel it because, oh, yeah. But that's that acute inflammation. That's what we feel. We feel the pressure. And that pressure is going to give us that signal that, oh, there's some, this, this hurts. Okay. And so, so that's the initial thing that we're feeling there. And that's because we've done a little bit of damage. There's some inflammation. The inflammation is going to go away over time, but it's that damage that is really going to be the key to getting rid of this problem that you've got with your, with your tendon. Okay, excellent. There's two things there that I'd, I'd like to bring up. One is, is backtracking a little bit. So I said, I've seen um, just more and more messages coming in from golfers struggling with these issues. And when I started thinking about what's changed in the last few years that that might be leading to this the two things that i kind of i came up with were that number one is that um more people had practice stations available at home because of uh, golf simulators were getting so cheap so people were putting in mats and simulators or even mats and a hitting net in their right. basement or whatever and also speed training has gotten way more popular so I'm, I'm with the speed training tools. You're now swinging things that are uh, different weights to your regular clubs. So some of them are heavier, some of them are lighter. So you're swinging as fast as you can, but the stress is very different. Right. And I think that's one of the things that has led to it for, for sure, because people are now doing way more swinging and way more fast swinging. Exactly. Um, the, the other thing then that I'd like you to touch on for the listeners, because a lot of them are just you know, people without a kind of, uh, you know, exercise physiology background is the difference in stress on tendons versus muscles from, say, light, fast exercises, like swinging something as fast as you can, right. versus relatively heavy weightlifting, which will inherently be much slower. Yeah, so so it's a, it's a really good question because that's also how we're going to train to either maximize performance on one side or we're going to maximize health on the other side. And so, and again, when we, the, when we maximize the health of the tendon, and this is strictly from the tendon point of view, so the, the way that we look at it, we say there's a classic thing in strength and conditioning is when you do lots of, um, when you don't do much heavy strength training, what happens is you, you get more muscle pulls. 
Um, when you do a lot of heavy strength training, you have fewer muscle pulls. And you get a, you can get a few more tendon injuries, but it's it's a different type of injury. So when we're talking about how these things are coming about, and what we're what we're doing is how the muscle responds differently than the tendon. So if if I'm going to do a heavy move or a fast move, I should say, like say say I'm going to do a bench press and I'm going to try and press it up really quickly. My muscle is only working for a very short period of time. It provides this powerful press, but then I use, once I get the, the weight moving, I'm using a lot of momentum there. And the momentum, that's going to be the thing that's going to, that I'm trying to maximize if I'm trying to maximize my performance. And so if I'm trying to maximize performance, and we see this all the time, you get these big, huge muscular people, and they go out and try and drive a golf ball, and they can't hit it more than a couple, you know, very far at all, a couple 20, 30, 40 yards. But then you get these little tiny people, and they are able to get this swing going, and they can hit it the thing miles. You combine somebody who's got good mechanics with somebody who's got a little bit more muscle, now you can hit it even farther. And so really the difference is that I can take somebody and we would call them muscular and they're not necessarily going to have good performance because what you're doing in a golf swing or what you're doing in a high speed movement, high jerk movement, like a swing or a or very fast running is we're using a lot of fascial loading where we're loading on the connective tissue. We're loading it by going in one direction to preload our tendons and our, and our, all of our ligaments. And then we're using a very quick muscle contraction that all it's doing is starting momentum going in the other direction. We're storing all of the momentum from our twist in the, in the away way, in the away form. And then we're just trying to transfer that as quickly as we can down this fascial chain, which is then going to include the, the golf club, and it's going to allow you to hit the ball. So really, the muscle, when you're hitting a golf club or a golf ball, just has this really quick, very short bang of a, of a contraction. Very little muscular work is required because everything is all about momentum. Starting and, and getting momentum as high as possible, that requires more of this, what we call stretch, uh, stretch shortening cycles, where we stretch something, we take advantage of that stretch, and then we shorten it as quickly as we can going in the other direction. And so that's going to be true if you're throwing a ball, if you're if you're hitting a tennis ball. If you were to try and hit a tennis ball but never take your arm, never rotate your shoulders, never take your arm past your body, you wouldn't be able to generate much power at all. All of the power from hitting a ball is coming from this preload where we move in the opposite direction and then we bring it back through. It's very high tendon stress. It's huge because as I'm doing that, now I'm accelerating. And now anything that I hit, I'm going to be hitting and I'm going to get jerk. That really high level of jerk because I hit the ball, even though the ball is tiny, you're still going to get those vibrations. And that's really the thing that's going to lead to the potential for injuring the tissue that we call a tendon. The collagen, the protein within the tendon is called collagen. You can damage the collagen by those very high jerk movements. Excellent. Okay. So if somebody has caused damage to these tendons from a high volume of these fast swings, what are the steps that they need to be thinking about to try and help themselves overcome it and hopefully not deal with it again in the future? I know that's probably quite a a broad um, question and there'll be lots of individual factors come into it, but what are the key things that people need to be thinking about for rehabilitating these damaged tendons. Yeah, so so let's go back a little bit and let's start with, um, it's not that you'll never be able to hit a lot of balls at a high speed. It's that you have to slowly ramp yourself into it. And that these tissues, because most people, they don't think of tendons as tissue. They think of it maybe as the little thing they have to take out of a chicken fillet when they're gonna, when they're, take out the little stringy part, that big white thing that they take out, doesn't look like a tissue that's actually like turning over and getting bigger and stronger. But, you know, one of my colleagues, he works with um, this, the former uh, Javelin world record holder. And he did ultrasound on the, on the fascia and the tendons within his throwing shoulder. And they were, 
he had fascia layers there that were three millimeters thick, where normal fascia is about 0.3 to 0.5 millimeters thick. So over time, these things get much, much bigger. They adapt. If we look at fencers, Michael Kerr's group looked at fencers and badminton players. They always step forward with the same leg. So if you look at their dominant leg, you'll see that their patellar tendon is actually about 50% thicker than their, than their non-dominant leg. So you can get these tissues to adapt. They will get bigger and they will be able to deal with more load as you go. The other thing to remember is that this becomes more and more of an issue the older you get. So when we're, and that's really important for us understanding why this is an issue. So if we take very young kids and they are doing something and they get an injury to their tendon and they get the exact same injury that somebody who's 30 or 40 gets, they're not going to show any signs of a scar in that tendon. The 40-year-old the is going to show a scar in their tendon. If you're 60 or 70, you're going to show an even bigger scar in the tendon. The reason for that is, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but when my daughter was young, she used to put her foot in her mouth and she used to stick her foot over her head and they're incredibly flexible. Their tendons, one of the reasons they can't stand up is their tendons aren't strong enough and they're not stiff enough. So because they're not stiff enough, they, they don't do the thing that as we get older causes the tendinopathy to be long lived. And that's this process we called stress shielding, okay? So in order for us to fix a tendon injury, we need to get directional load to the cells that are in that injured area. They're trying to fix it. They don't want to make a scar. They want to make a tendon. But because of that evolutionary process we talked about early, all of the tendon, all of the stress or all of the strain is going around the injured area because the injured area is much weaker. So all the strong stuff takes the load. And the result is that you don't get load through the damaged area. In a very young individual, the tendon isn't strong enough to shield it. So the result is the load goes through the injured area. You don't get a scar. As you get older and you get stiffer tendons, you stress shield much, much better. So as we get older, our tendons get stiffer. And as we get stiffer, we're going to be able to stress shield an injury even better. So it becomes harder and harder to overcome this. So then... What we have to do is we have to take advantage of the physical properties of a tendon, okay? So a tendon undergoes what we call, um, it's, it's this tissue that has a lot of water in it, okay? It's what we call a viscoelastic tissue. So if I pull on a tendon and hold it, it's going to slowly become less and less stiff over time, even if it's perfectly healthy, okay? The analogy I do for my students is think of um, a really big muscular um, power lifter produces lots of lots of force and they're doing a tug of war they're going to produce a lot of force at the beginning but their endurance is really really poor so their their strength is going to go down really quickly so if you have two people and one's that big power lifter and one's a little tiny normal sized person who just get, but has good endurance at the start of the exercise the big power lifter is producing a ton of force but because he's losing strength really quickly because he gets tired really easily over say 20 or 30 seconds. Now he's not pulling very much. And that smaller individual is now pulling the same amount or even a little bit more than the big power lifter. And that's really what we have to do with tendons when they're really hurt. What we're going to do is we're going to cause, we're going to do these very long, slow contractions. So in your programs, a lot of times what you're doing is you're doing some slow lengthening contractions. That's really good. What we do is we understand that the, the benefit of weight training, the benefit of strength training for anybody who's trying to overcome a tendon problem is the process of stress relaxation. And what that is, is letting the strong parts get tired so that the weakest part, that scarred area, has to contribute to loading. As soon as they get loaded, now they can get the signals to, to replace and repair that tissue. That only happens when we do what are called longer isometrics, if we're trying to fix a really, really stubborn tendon problem. So you can do, if you're uninjured, some slow lengthenings are going to be really good as a way to preventatively help the tissue. But once you get to a point where you've got, a, you've got an injury there, 
And if you're somebody who has got stiff tendons or has a history of tendonitis or tendinopathy, now you're going to have to get in there with even slower movements. So you're doing a really slow lengthenings. That's great. But when you've got that injury, now you go to the slowest possible movement. And it's what we call an isometric move. And so what it is, is it's just a, a contraction where the muscle is working, but it's working, but it's not moving. So here, what we're doing is we're trying to contract the muscle hard and we're trying to contract it in a way that's going to load the tendon that we're interested in. And we're going to hold it there and we're going to increase the time that we can hold it there up to 30 seconds. And once we reach 30 seconds, we'll let the, ten we'll let the tension off the muscle. That'll relax the tendon. And you can do that. You, you then take a two minute break and you do that again. And you only have to do that four times to load that tissue and get the maximal activation of the cells within your regenerating tendon. Okay. So just want to sum up, <clears throat> excuse me, for people here who, who couldn't see the demonstration you're doing and just who might not be familiar with isometrics versus regular exercises. Right. So we touched on that kind of the, the types of movements that cause the highest tendon stress are the very light, fast exercises. Absolutely. Which, which for golfers is primarily going to be, I would say, uh, swinging their golf clubs, swinging their speed training tools, and probably things like uh, medicine ball throws too, where they're really trying to release the ball quickly. Um, people who have maybe healthy tendons or only slightly damaged tendons can maybe heal their scars or at least prevent injuries to the tendons with regular heavy strength training, which is by its nature, going to be slow contractions because right. the weight is heavy. You can't move it quickly. But what you're saying here is that regular heavy strength training for those tendons might not be enough if they are significantly damaged, and we might need to do these isometrics. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so, so the isometric is basically taking the exercises that you would do normally to, to do the injury prevention – and doing that to as a way, instead of doing the movement, you go to a long muscle length. So that means it's kind of, if you're doing it to try and get the the, the, the golfer's elbow, now you, what you're going to do is your, your wrist is going to be um, somewhat flexed. As you go, you can add some rotation into it. But basically... That's going to be tennis, right? Tennis the way you're, so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's going to be, the wrist is going to be extended. The elbow is going to be out and you're going to be holding the weight in such a way as that you're going to get load through essentially the same space that our baseball players want to get it for their ulnar collateral ligament. And so again, what you're looking for is you're looking for ways in which you can load that and hold that to allow the tendon to slowly relax. All of the healthy parts of the tendon are slowly relaxing. And as they relax, that injured part that's not as strong it has to take the load now because it's now as strong as the part of the tendon, the healthy part that's relaxed. As soon as it gets the signals that it needs, now it knows what to do. The cells within that part of the tendon that have been damaged for so long, oh, well, that's where the direction of the load is. And that's, that's how I'm going to make my collagen. And that's how you regenerate the tissue. Okay, fantastic. We, we might round up at the end with more specifics on exactly how that isometric loading protocol works. Um, what I wanted to just touch on very quickly is the typical types of timeframes for these tendons to heal. You know, we, we hear so much about how slow they can be to recover and how long people can deal with the problems. How quickly should be, people be expecting to see improvements in their symptoms with these loading protocols? Okay. So, so one of the things that Jill Cook has shown is that when you do isometrics, you actually get an analgesic effect. So what that means is it stops, it, you don't feel the pain as much. So within 30 minutes to, to an hour after you do an isometric hold, you're actually going to feel less pain through that tendon. It's just one of the properties of, of doing the isometric holds. And it's probably because the isometric holds activate the little the thing that's probably the source of the injury, the source of the pain at least, which is the little sensory organ within the tendon. It's called the Golgi tendon organ. Okay, so you do an isometric hold, 
for about from about 30 minutes afterwards until about three to four hours afterwards. So there's going to be this period of analgesia. It's just going to feel like you've you've put some anti-inflammatory on there, or and it feels less sore. Some people would say, "Oh, it feels great." So now I'm going to go out and swing a bunch. Again, it's not better. It just doesn't feel as bad. So you got to be careful when you're doing that. We we've seen so we've had. Uh, the fastest we've we've actually tracked, physically looked on ultrasound, seen a hole in a tendon. In this case, it was a patellar tendon. It was a fairly sizable hole. By the time we've been able to progressively look by ultrasound, it took about seven weeks for us to completely fill in that hole. Now, the holes we're talking about for, for, for a golfer's elbow aren't going to be as dramatic as the ones you get for patellar tendinopathy. So, so these, you should be already feeling differences within one to two weeks, and it should be provided that you continue to do some of the exercises for the full period. Within a month, you should be able to have the tissue almost completely re repaired, okay? And I know it's a lot shorter than what people get reported. A lot of the reasons that doctors tell you it's going to take a year is because up until recently, we haven't understand, understood how we should be loading these tissues. Okay, if you don't understand how to load the tissues, you're not going to actually be able to get the load through the tissue. And what that means is, if you can't get load into the scar, you're not going to repair it. So now that we have this good idea of using these isometrics to let the healthy part of the tendon relax, while the injured part of the tendon can actually feel the load, because we can do that, now what we're gonna now what we can do is we can get those cells within what is classically called the scar, we can get those scarred cells to actually start to repair very quickly. And the turnover in tendon is actually a lot faster than most medical doctors understand. How challenging should these isometric holes be? So it's not as much about um, like putting as much load through it as you can. So we're not trying to do like 110% of, no. You can do if, again, it's, it's all going to be about some of your own personal history. So if you've got a history of tendonitis or tendinopathy throughout your body, it might be different. If you've got a lot of stiffness within the structures, it's gonna be, it's gonna take more load to get through some of that stiffness. So, but if you're fairly active, you know, 20 to 40 year old, you can get, you can do as little as 40% of a, of maximal force when you're doing the types of movements that we're talking about. If you are somebody who has never had an injury and you want to prevent the injury, basically, if you just go in and you do an, a 30 second isometric contraction that loads the, the area of, of interest for, for, you know, golfer's elbow, and you do that after your, after your practice and after your training or after your round, that should be enough to prevent you from getting any, any significant issues developing. So what we would normally say is that we're, we're going to start people with about 40 to 50% of a maximal force. If that's not enough, after a week or so, we can increase the load through there simply by increasing the amount of weight that's on the on the device they're using, okay? Yeah, so for the 30 to 40% of, of maximum contraction, would that be more for an overcoming isometric? And then what about the ones where you're you know, yielding and you're trying to stop the weight yeah. from falling down essentially? Should that be more so like almost approaching failure after the 30 seconds or so, not quite? So you can, you can definitely do like what are called yielding isometrics where you're holding a weight that you can lift with two legs, but you can you can barely hold it with one. You're going to hold that weight as long as you can, and then you're going to let that come back. That's that's great if again if you have people who are have a significant tendinopathy that's been well entrenched. So we use that with a professional basketball player because he had had tendinopathy for more than five years. He had jumpers knee for more than five years. This is a young man who jumps out of the gym and just incredible, you know, the tissues are just amazing. So we had to put more load through it in order to get the kind of response that we would normally get at a much lower load in somebody who's more um, average in their capability. Yeah. 
So, so again, you're going to, you can, you can play around with it, but I would just start with something around between 30 and 50% of maximum force to, to be able to do, and, you know, just hold that position for 30 seconds. Yeah, fantastic. And that's something then that can be adjusted over time based on how the tendon responds, maybe wait 24 to 48 hours, see how it feels when you go back to do that exercise again and, and adjust based on maybe a, a kind of pain scale. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if there's pain through the tissue, what we normally say is for for an average person, we're saying don't have don't be don't be pushing it behind beyond a three to four on a pain scale if it's an acute injury. So out of 10. Yeah, three to four out of ten. Yeah. On our elite athletes, we tell them no pain because they tend to think that pain doesn't start until about nine. So <laughs> so you know, we're we have to mitigate some of that. So so we'll tell them there should be no pain through the tissue. But for for average people who understand and they, you know, if they're going three to four out of 10, that's that's okay. As long as the pain is kind of generalized in the area and it's not a point specific like tearing feel or an ice pick type feel that you're getting through the tendon. Okay, excellent. While people are going through this loading protocol to try and heal the tendon, should they completely stop their their golf swinging or is it a case of modifying the amount they're doing so that they're not uh, exasperating the issue? So when we were doing the basketball player I was telling you about, that was in season. He played 50 basketball games that year, trained every, you know, he's basically doing it, playing a basketball game every two to three nights. Um, still was able to, to improve the tenant through the season, no problem. Um, also improved symptomology. So, so you can do it um, quite readily as you're still participating. We have lots of people. So I'll put up stuff on, on Twitter or something and people come to me and say, look, I have a running streak that I've had for this many years. And I, but then I had Achilles pain and now I'm doing your Achilles or I have plantar fascia. So we do this load. I've been doing your loading program and no problems. It's getting better, even though I'm doing this high number of miles every week. We don't tell people to stop their activity. That's actually the worst thing that we find that you can do for it because the movement itself, if you don't do it, the tissues, as I said, for the javelin thrower who had that basically had six times as much connective tissue in his, in his, in the connective tissues that were on his throwing arm. If he stopped throwing, those things are going to shrink away. And for him to then build that up, build that resilience up again, it's going to take a long time. He built that up over 20 plus years of throwing the javelin. It's not something that if that you want to stop and let it kind of disintegrate over time. Because as soon as you're not moving, things are not, there's no stimulus for them to get better. So you can continue to do your loading because you're still going to, you can modify it. So maybe you're not doing as much with that club that's slightly lighter than you would normally use because you're trying to increase your club speed. Um, But you still do a little bit, you still have to do some of the volume because if you stop it completely, now you're going to have to go back to such a slow ramp when you start up again that it's just going to take forever and the, the likelihood of you redeveloping it is going to be very high. Yeah, that's something that's very common in golfers. They have pain in their elbow. They're advised to rest. They don't do anything for maybe four and six, four or six weeks. Their elbow feels fine. Then they go back to the exact same activity that they had been doing when the elbow pain was present. And right away, the issue flares back up because they haven't rehabbed it. Yeah, and so we actually, we actually showed that um, in a study that we did with animals where we where we just inactivated the nerve to a muscle. And we looked at the tendon, and over five weeks, which is kind of the, the period of time where everybody says, well, take four to six weeks off, over the five-week period, we lost all of the healthy aspect of the tendon. So the healthy mechanics of the tendon – are developed by the muscle contracting and loading that tissue. If you're not doing it, your tendon just gets really, really, really stiff. And that's actually the worst thing that you could do. That's the worst aspect that the tendon is going to have for it. And so you still want to be loading. I actually, you know, when I do, because I still play intramurals with my lab and we, you know, I'll twist an ankle, I'll get, 
now I'm to the point where I twist the ankle. I'm, I'm mobilizing immediately. I'm doing all kinds of movement. I don't ice. I don't rest. I don't do any of those kind of pressure ice compress and all of that stuff. That's where I stay away from that because those are the things that basically that are going to stabilize everything. And then you can't move. And now you have to do this huge rehabilitation. Whereas by mobilizing it continuously, I can isometrically load my twisted ankle the same day and I'll still get a bruise on the outside, but I'll be able to walk pain-free and I'll be able to, and it'll recover super fast in comparison to if I had taken all the weight off, if I had, if I had unloaded for a period of time, if I did extensive icing or all of those things just tend to cause more problems. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It, it leads me into what my next kind of question was, is this whole podcast, what you've been talking about for tendon repair is loading it. You have to stress it to stimulate repair. Yet so many people are advised rest, anti-inflammatories, ice, heat, massage, acupuncture, dry needling, stretching, all these passive things that aren't really applying much load. Can you dig into, I know you touched on it a little bit, but why they aren't really going to be the answer to fixing these tendons? Yeah, so they're not the answer to fixing the tendon because they don't address the, the fundamental property. And the fundamental issue is that in order to fix the tissue, in order to get rid of a scar, so the best evidence that a scar is caused by unloading a tendon is done by this Japanese group. Um, Ohashi is the is the guy. He's now retired. Beautiful work. What they did is they took rabbits and they took the patella, the kneecap, and they put a little wire through the patella and then all the way into the tibia. So they took the kneecap and connected it using a wire to the shin bone. And so all that did is they took the load off the patellar tendon. And then over four weeks, what they did is they watched the patellar tendon. And what they saw is there were a lot more cells in the tendon. The collagen molecules got smaller and the direction of the collagen became non, non-oriented. So it became random. If I were to tell you what a scar is, there's lots of cells in it. There, the collagen is smaller and the collagen is at random orientation. All three of the things that we consider to be a scar, he produced in a perfectly healthy tendon just by taking the load off. So why would I advise somebody to do that as part of their recovery from an injury? What it does is if you rest it long enough, that it becomes so kind of, it loses all of its strength. Now it can't stress shield anymore. And the result is that the whole thing will get loaded. And if you go very slowly back into your loading program, but extraordinarily slowly, that you can actually reload it and it could get better. But to do that, you would have to basically break it down to almost like childlike properties. And then you'd have to build it up over a period of time. They actually did this in horses. They injected it with a drug that caused the collagen to become really basically stretchy so that it couldn't shield the injury because the number one reason that athletic horses are put down is because of tendinopathies. So what they did is they injected this drug. It caused it to become stretchy over a four-week period. They look at ultrasound. Tendon looks perfectly beautiful because you've gotten rid of the scar. But now when they take those tendons out, those horses out to, to walk or to run, they're really, really, they're basically like developmental tendons. That's why they're now able to fix without a scar. But it also means that the rehab is going to be super, super long. Because there's no stiffness there. There's they no can't stiffness. function, basically. Yeah. So I can produce no stiffness in your tendons just by having you hold a contraction in that, in that position for 30 seconds. And that's, you know, all of your listeners will have done it in gym class, a wall sit. You sit it and you do a wall sit. You sit with your, your knees and your hips at 90 degrees and your legs start shaking. Your muscles are working really hard. All that's happening is your, your tendons are relaxing. So now your muscle has to work really, really hard to contract, even though you're not moving. And if you can get those tendons to become relaxed like that, the same way that you, they would have been non-stiff when you were a kid, that's exactly what we need in order to fix them, in order to get them the stimulus they need to recover. So why would I go in and prevent you from loading 
if all I'm going to do is make the scar worse. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Just two more questions, Keith. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, one of the main things that we're looking for with this loading protocol is collagen synthesis. Mm -hmm. I've listened to some of your stuff before about supplementing with collagen to help with this process. Can you touch on that quickly? Maybe what you've done in your research, what type of collagen and, and why this might be a good idea? Sure. So, so basically what we're doing is um, what our research has shown is that when, when you take, when you take some, some either dietary collagen, so it could be gelatin or it could be hydrolyzed collagen and you, and you take, and you eat it, basically all of the amino acids that we find in a tendon go up within your blood. So you digest and absorb them, just like anything else you eat. But that's important because a lot of the proteins that we eat normally, so if we do dairy protein or if we have whey protein, great, great protein, complete protein has all of the amino acids, but it doesn't have very much glycine. Our tendons, our collagen within our tendons are 30% glycine. They're 30% proline. Those amino acids aren't as enriched in other types of, of nutrient, of supplements. And so what we've done is we've shown that if you take um, gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen an hour before you do exercise, like, and again, as I said, for tendons, short periods of exercise are, are all you're looking for. So if we're trying to load a, an injured tendon, we're going to give it four isometric loads that last 30 seconds, two minutes of rest between them, total time is going to be eight minutes. We don't want to load them for hours. We just want to load them for five to 10 minutes. If I take 15 grams of collagen, either gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen, an hour before I do that loading, now all I've done is I've made it so that the nutrients or the amino acids that the cells are going to need to build new collagen are in the fluid around the tissue when I'm doing the loading. The reason that's important is there's not a lot of blood supply to a tendon. And so the way that they get nutrients is they, as you pull on it, as your muscle pulls on the tendon, it squeezes out all the water. And then as it relaxes, it sucks water in from the environment. And what we've shown and what, what Michael Kara's group has shown beautifully in people is that collagen synthesis really peaks around 24 hours after exercise, um, 24, even 36 hours after exercise. So what you want to do is I want to do the same thing today. I'm going to do the same time around the same time tomorrow. I'm going to do the same thing. So I'm going to have my load and my supplement around the same time today as tomorrow as the next day. And what I'm doing is I'm building upon that tw every 24 hours, I'm going to get this stimulus. And that's going to be ideal for building the collagen that's going to help us re regenerate the tissue that's been injured. Excellent. Is there a particular brand of collagen that's on the market you recommend or it doesn't? I, I, brand hasn't mattered to us in our studies. Um, I'm, you know, I go to, I go to Costco like a lot of people and then, and there's, I just get one of the big tubs of, of powdered uh, hydrolyzed collagen. I get, you know, I get, I make it as a, as gummies in my household. So my daughter, my wife and I, we all eat gummies. So I'll do 50% gelatin, 50% hydrolyzed collagen. And it, the, the brand doesn't matter. Um, all that matters is it's something that you, that you do in a repeated way in a, so that you've got this, so that every 24 to 48 hours, you're getting that load through the tissue. That's going to give you the stimulus you need in order to regenerate that tissue. Excellent. Perfect. Just one last question then, Keith. So we've touched on the rehab process and hopefully there's a su successful outcome. When might there, that not happen? Is there times when surgical intervention may be necessary or how would you approach that topic? Um, our, our injection, that, that's another one. Surgery yeah. and injection were, were common things that people wanted to know about. Yeah. So a lot of injections, so a lot of injections short term, they'll, they'll dull the pain. Um, so a lot of athletes will do injections just because they have to play. So if, if you're going to be a football player and you are on the, the, the Bengals or the, or the Rams this year, and you get the chance to play in the Super Bowl, but you have a tendon problem, you're going to do whatever it takes and you're going to take some pain killing injection long term. It's not going to benefit anything. Most of the studies on cortisol would say that actually cortisol is, has a negative long-term effect. Good short term takes away the pain long-term negative. Uh, as far as things like PRP, 
If you have a lower limb injury, PRP is not useful. There's really good evidence that uh, that shows that in a patellar tendon or an anterior knee pain, it's not useful. In the upper body, it's a little bit more efficacious. All it means is that when you get a PRP injection, as soon as you put load through the tendon, the PRP gets squeezed out and it goes everywhere throughout the body. If I inject it into my into my patellar tendon, my knee my knee tendons, or my Achilles tendon, my my heel cord, as soon as I walk home from the doctor, I've squeezed out all the PRP and there's nothing left there. With the upper body, because we don't have to load it to to move around, it's a it can work a little bit better, but it's still not great. Um, and really, a lot of times, a lot of times people will do needling or they'll stick needles into tendons. Part of what you get with PRP is you put the needle into it. You just damage it. You weaken it. And so now there's less of that stress shielding because the tendon's not as strong. So there's not really a case where a surgical outcome is better than a non-surgical outcome unless it's a complete rupture. If it's a complete rupture, then yeah, we'll go in and we'll repair it. Uh, We'll have somebody repair it and then we'll start loading on it the next day. Even though the doc, the doctor is going to be freaking out because, oh, no, you're going to pull out the stitches. You're going to do whatever. No, you're just going to put a low, a slight isometric load on it. And we're going to try and talk the doctor into having resorbable sutures so that the sutures aren't very strong. Because a lot of doctors, they think, oh, I got to make this really, really strong, especially with an elite athlete. And then all that happens is now you've got a different form of stress shielding so that the tissue all around the, the sutures you've put in, it dies because there's no reason for it because there's such a strong interface between the metal-enforced suture or whatever that the doctors put in so that the bone and the tendon around it just they get resorbed because they're not used. And so you get a secondary injury because the doctor was so so important to the doctor to get it to be, help, to be strong today that over in the future, it's actually going to end up being weaker and, and failing. So what we want is we want a weak interface today or just enough of an interface to keep the two ends together. And then I'm going to put a little tiny bit of load through it every day. And so that as those two little ends start coming back together, we never get to a period of, of stress shielding. That tissue can regenerate completely. Excellent. Keith, that is fantastic. I really appreciate the information. I don't want to keep it any longer. I uh, I greatly appreciate the time you took and thank you very much for joining us. I'm oh, sure a lot of the listeners will benefit. Um, lastly, is there somewhere people can go to follow more of your work if they're interested in digging in a little bit deeper? Yeah, so so whenever we have new stuff come out, I'll, I'll talk about it on Twitter. Um, my, my Twitter handle is at Muscle Science. Um, so, so that's a good place to, to find out about what we're doing. People can look on PubMed for, for a lot of the, the research papers that we've done. Um, the only important thing is to make sure that you get the two A's in my last name because everybody, um, everybody tries to spell it with two R's, but it's B-A-A-R. And if you do that with the K and you look up tendon, you'll, you'll get a bunch of papers on PubMed or in other sources. That's brilliant. Keith, thank you very much. I really appreciate it and we'll stay in touch. All right. You're welcome. Take care.